Let me um, lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank and praise you for your living and active word that we have in front of us. Pray that you might soften our hearts, that we might hear your voice. Pray that you would speak to us into our situations and our contexts. You know the reality of our lives at the moment. You know that we need to hear your voice, and so we pray that you would speak. Amen. 1982, January the 13th, Washington, D.C. Arland Dean Williams, Jr., a federal bank examiner, drowned in the Potomac River. And he drowned because the plane that he was in um, crashed into the water because of engine failure. And I don't remember this, but I suspect there are some in this room who do. Um, the plane in question was Air Florida Flight 90, flying from Washington National Airport in Virginia um, through to Hollywood International Airport in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And the plane crashed on January the 13th into the Potomac River, killing all but four passengers and one flight attendant. Um, Arlen Dean Williams Jr., as he was known at the time, was passenger six, but was later identified. And yet the peculiarity surrounding his death was that he died despite being given a lifeline again and again. It just so happened that the plane went down um, in the water um, next to a bridge, and so TV cameras were able to get there very quickly, and it was streamed live into people's um, front rooms. And you could see the winch going down, and yet he doesn't come up, but someone else does. The question is asked, why is he not grabbing it? What is going on? Why is he not being carried away? But it turns out, it turns out we were just seeing things from one particular angle. The answer to the question, why wasn't he winched away, was that he was rescuing others. He was passing the winch to other people in the water. And the survivors, the few survivors that there are, owe their lives to him today. Each time he would pass the line on to someone else. Um, now, where the, crash, where the crash happened, there is a bridge named after him. And where he graduated from military college, now there are memorials dedicated to him. Where he grew up in Illinois, now there's an elementary school named after him. And the reason I tell this story to begin is it's very easy to see events from a particular angle, yet not quite understand what is going on. So you can look at the river and you can see the winch going down and you can think, well, I don't understand this story. I don't understand this perspective. It's, a, it's confusing. Why is he not being rescued? Well, so it is, I think, as we reach the Garden of Gethsemane um, for this morning. I don't know what you would think about the cross. If you're here this morning, maybe you would um, not call yourself a Christian. You're just looking in on Christian things. You're trying to decide whether Jesus is relevant or not. And yet what we have in John 18, and we'll be here for the next few weeks, um, what we have is an eyewitness account from one of Jesus' best friends, closest friends, and we see the cross coming into ever clearer focus week by week by week. Here we have an account from somebody who was actually there. This isn't hearsay, this isn't fable, this isn't myth, but an eyewitness 
who wrote down what he saw. In fact, an eyewitness who was so convinced of the identity of Jesus that church history would tell us he ends up being locked up in a prison for his faith. A man who elsewhere will say he heard and he saw and he touched Jesus. And here we get to read about the one whom he heard from and the one whom he saw and the one whom he touched. We are with him in the garden, seeing it through his eyes. There are little details, maybe you spotted them as Joanna read for us, that that only a man who was there could actually see. So what I want to do this morning um, is to examine this story from two perspectives. If you like, we're going to put different glasses on each time, different angles. Um, Not only does John tell us what he saw, but he explains what he saw in such a way that we see why it matters. We see what is really going on in this encounter in the garden. Um, So two perspectives. The first one is the simple one, if you like, and that is the human perspective. Um, We're jumping in at chapter 18. If you just flick back a page or three, you will see where we've come from. And if you know John's gospel, that will not be a surprise to you. We've just spent four chapters around a table eating a Passover meal. A special Jewish festival. Jesus teaching his disciples how they're going to get by without him. And indeed more than that, teaching them how it will be even better for them if he goes To be honest, it is a bit of an unusual meal. It starts off with Jesus washing their feet, cleaning away the dirt, getting in between their toes. The middle of the meal ends with one of their number leaving um, to betray him, Judas. And then the end of the meal ends with Jesus praying enormous prayers for them, but also for us. For years and generations to come, for believers who down the centuries and would receive this baton of the gospel and pass it on for others. He, he prays for believers to be united. So it is, a, it is an unusual meal. It's not your normal Passover meal. And that's where we've come from. And then we reach verse 1. Jesus When he had finished praying, left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. This is Gethsemane. It's likely it was a a, a local walled garden full of olive trees. And it seems it was somewhere they had come before, often it seems. And, And there they go for a time. And yet suddenly... We are reunited with Judas again. But now it's not just Judas. Now it's Judas with company. And it would be an understatement to say that this company doesn't look particularly friendly. Verse 3. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches Lanterns and weapons. It's an unlikely alliance we read of. It's a peculiar mix. We wouldn't expect to see them together. On the one hand, we've got Roman soldiers. Do you remember at the time, the Romans were occupying the land. They were unwelcome landlords. They were bullies, largely detested by the Jews. But with them, we've got officials. 
officials from, do you see, the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were the Jewish temple police from the religious powers that be. Usually they would be enemies. But here they are unlikely bedfellows. Roman soldiers, Jewish religious leaders, putting differences aside, united around their desire to get rid of Jesus. And then in, in among them we have Judas who leads them to Jesus. And so, from a human perspective, here is a story of betrayal and treachery. Betrayal maybe by a man who's disillusioned with Jesus. The one whom he gave it all up for, and what kind of a revolution is he going to lead? Maybe he's greedy, thirsty for money. We get glimpses of that later on. Betrayal from Judas. But it's also a real story of misunderstanding on the side of Jesus' disciples. When the soldiers approach, look at dear Peter. As always, Peter, the first one in to leap with both feet. I do like Peter. Verse 10 then, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's those little details. You can tell it is an honest eyewitness account, can't you? It's, it's an eyewitness account because names of body parts are given. It, was his, it wasn't just his ear, it was his right ear. And actually, it belonged to a man called Malchus. Eyewitness, but then it's honest as well because the disciples get it wrong again. They are so slow. The stuff of legends would have them with sort of rippling muscles, photoshopped and edited and always getting it right. But here we see the reality of the disciples. John tells it as it was. Weak and worldly and embarrassing and slow to understand and rather like us. They've just had the most extraordinary four chapters, small group teaching around a meal. It's kind of home group par excellence. And then before you know it, Peter's there with his sword chopping off ears, confused and confounded. What is going on? Disillusioned little rabbits looking into the bright headlights of Roman doom. And Peter panics. This wasn't the plan. This wasn't what they gave it all up for. He wasn't the one they backed their life on, was he? It's all tumbling down in front of their eyes and they don't quite know what to do with themselves. And we feel like we're with John in the garden there. The smell of betrayal, the smell of blood. But that's just the story from street level. That's just from one perspective. We can't leave it there. It's much more than just a historical account going on that John recounts for us. It's more than just soldiers in a garden. It's more than just Judas's betrayal. He's told us what happens. Now he tells us within the detail what it means. John nudges us to help us understand. If that was the street level, now we're going up. If that was Google Street View, now we're going up to proper Google Maps. And so we see the divine perspective, God's perspective. 
If we think this is just a human story, then we're really missing what John is writing about. We mustn't forget that at the very heart of this account, even when it looks least likely, Jesus is completely in charge. Even when the disciples doubt it the most, even when swords are drawn and ears are chopped, Jesus is still in charge, still in control, still working out the plans and purposes of God. And and friends, I take it if that is true here in the garden, when it looks least likely, maybe that is true in our lives too. Maybe that's the kind of way God does stuff. It all looks out of control in John 18, but it's really not. And so when our lives all look out of control, maybe they're really not. That thing we're worrying about, that situation on the horizon, that, that's the issue that we are struggling to trust him with. Maybe he's got it, actually. Maybe you look back at that thing back there and think, well, what was he doing? And we don't know yet, but perhaps one day we might. Well, so notice, as we see these events unfolding, we are privileged to see the meaning and the plans and the purposes of what God is doing. We can trust him. He is good. He is at work. Why, though, do we say he's in control? Prove it. I think there are at least, at least, possibly more, but at least six little, little bits of treasure in the midst of the mud and the mess that show us that God is still in control, even in John 18 in the garden. The first one is the fact that it's not just a garden, and we'll come on to that, but it's actually it's a garden that is well known. Verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And it might sound a bit too simple to say, but Jesus doesn't hide, does he? He could have. He knows Judas has gone. He knows he has gone to betray him. He's left at the meal back in chapter 13, so Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. He knows what's coming, and yet he still goes to a place that Judas is so well aware of. I mean, imagine the story. Judas turns up with the soldiers, um, with the the officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they walked into the garden, and there was no one there. Ah, says Judas. Maybe he's hiding, but he doesn't do that. Actually, he, this isn't a secret garden. This is a place where he knew he'd be found. And it's a garden. That's obvious, because it says so in verse 1. And gardens feature quite highly when it comes to important places in the Bible. and God's dealings with the world, it all went wrong at the beginning in a garden. Temptation leads to denial and to a doubting of God's word and God's character. All the way forward to Revelation, we end up in a garden, or at least a garden city. This first garden expanded and magnified, full of people having known grace of the Lord Jesus, a place of ultimate blessing. But we're in a garden now, not a place of blessing, but a place of betrayal, and yet a garden that can't be avoided for us to get to a place of blessing. So it's a garden. Secondly, John's there with his highlighter. 
And in case we miss it, verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? I mean, you can't miss that, can you? It might look like events are conspiring, but actually it's happening as it was meant to. Jesus is fully aware of the situation. John, writing it later, presumably blatantly blurts out, ah, I see the pieces. Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was coming. This isn't a surprise. Third bit of treasure is there in verse 5 to 6. Again, if you've not read this before, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Um, Let me read from 4. Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, that's a weird response. If I were to say to you, I am he, and you fell to the ground, we'd think something strange was going on. But it's interesting, the crowd at the time get the point. He wants us to latch on to who Jesus really is. His actual answer to the question is, I am which, remember, is the name in the Old Testament that God used of of himself. It was the name that God's, God's people used of him. It was the name that you could not use. And so Jesus boldly, brashly, deliberately says, I am, and they fall before him. He had used it earlier in John, um, and the Jewish leaders had tried to kill him for it. They thought he was blaspheming. And Jesus deliberately uses it here. Which, of course, is on the way past a little lay-by. When people say to us, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God, did he? Which they sometimes say. I think verses like this make that problematic as a claim. Jesus using a name only God could use of himself. And they hear it and they fall to the ground because they get it. They see what he is saying. Fourthly, again, we see it's not random because we see things are being fulfilled. That's there in verse 8 to 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And then John says, this happens so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So even in the thick of it, even in the darkness, Jesus is seeking to protect his disciples, to preserve them, to keep them safe. And we'll see it even more in the weeks to come. Even from the cross, he is thinking of others. But now it's extraordinary. He is so kind. His concern is not for himself, but for his disciples. And so again, John's commentary, verse 9, this happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. What words? Again, I take it if we were there, we're thinking back in the chapter before this, with Jesus praying in the upper room to the Father for them. Verse um, 12 of chapter 17, Jesus says to the Father, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. None has been lost except Judas. Um, And why does that matter? Again, it shows us that if we can trust Jesus in the little things, 
then we can trust him in the big things as well as in the little things in our lives. That seems to be an application for us. If we can trust him in the little things, then we can trust him with the big things. Jesus has prayed to preserve his disciples, to protect them, to keep them secure and safe. And you see, he has done that. We can lean on him, we can trust him, we can rely on him. Know even that he is praying for you now. Romans 8, 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He is interceding for us before the Father. We can trust him. We can lean on him. We can rely on him. If you were to push me, though, I think gems five and six are the key ones. We've gone one through four. The fifth one now is the cup, the focus of the section. If you've dropped off, drop back on again. Verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Again, just notice implicitly the, the temptation to not go God's way, to not go the way of the, tro- the cross, the temptation to avoid God's will. Again, there's another garden in the back of our minds, surely, a, a garden where, where God's will was thrown off, where his word was doubted and denied. But Jesus is here, he is resolute, he will go the way of the Father. His... Peter's rush of blood to the head actually reveals for us the kind of king Jesus would come and be. He will firstly be one who submits to the Father. It reminds us who's in charge. Verse 11. The Father, God the Father, this is his plan. This is why Jesus came. This is the kind of kingdom he's come for. So it shows us who's in charge, verse 11, but it also shows us something of what the plan is too. Not just who, but what. Drinking the cup. I take it the cup here, and John at least, means the cup of God's anger, his, his righteous and just and measured, pure anger against sin and rebellion. It is the right response of a holy God to rebellion against him. It's there actually in a number of places in the Old Testament. Just for now, um, Isaiah 51 and verse 17, if you want to scribble it down or do flick to it super quick, but awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the goblet that makes people stagger. These are the people of God judged for their sin, the cup of the Lord. Which means we have a God who cares about wrongdoing, a God who cares about sin, a God who cares at the huge scale of political dictators who exploit their people or on the, the local scale of knives and riots and 
whatever it might be, to the little scale of our lives, our own lives, our own hearts. A God who doesn't just pretend it's not there, but actually deals with it. A God who is patient. We heard about that last week. We were reminded again at the bus stop today. But a God who will punish. Who will punish. And so Jesus is going to face the cup the Father has given him. The cup of God's anger. It's about, it's around about this point that people, particularly in our culture, and maybe in our own hearts, get a bit twitchy and we come up with kind of objections to this kind of idea. Firstly, the question sometimes comes, well, how could God do that to his own son? How could he punish his own son for his anger? That sounds harsh. That sounds like not really the kind of God I'd like to believe in. Thank you very much. And if that's you, come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to talk about that. But for now, just know that Jesus was not coerced or manipulated or tricked. He is willing. He was one of the planners. Through John's Gospel, we read the astounding claims about who Jesus is. He, chapter 5, he is the life giver. He's the one who will judge, in fact. And so one writer says this. Jesus is God. He, he isn't just an innocent third party. He is the judge himself suffering. The one who determines the punishment takes it. The one who passes judgment receives it. It is Jesus, the incarnate God. Though you see, to rightly understand the cross, we have to understand something of how the Trinity works. But then the second question people sometimes come up with, what is, I've heard that Jesus didn't sin. And if Jesus didn't sin, why is God the Father punishing him why is he the one on the cross? What has Jesus done wrong for the Father to be angry about? How does that work? Which then leads us to our sixth little bit of treasure from the divine perspective. It's there in verse 14. Again, John just kind of slips it in and gives us a nudge on the way past. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. You see, what has the Father got to be angry about? Well, it's not the sin of Jesus, but it's the sin of his people. Caiaphas, back in chapter 11, um, end of chapter 11, spoke much more than he knew. And John nudges us and he says, do you remember? Remember a few chapters before? Remember Caiaphas? Remember what he said? It's, uh, it's called a substitution. It's, it's one person coming in the place of another. It's one person dealing with the sin of another. Caiaphas was a prophet, in a sense. As Jesus lovingly takes the place of his people, as Jesus lovingly takes the cup the Father has given, so he dies instead of us. So he suffers instead of us. So he deliberately, willingly rescues that we might be forgiven. He is our substitute. And that is a truth we need to hear. 
As you look back on your last week, in your mind's eye, and you know the reality of how this week's gone, you know the times you have spoken and you have thought and you have done things that were not appropriate for a child of God. So we're thankful for the words of Caiaphas. As you look into your own heart, and you know the reality of your own heart, the murky darkness that's still there. So we are thankful for the words of Caiaphas. As you look further back, or perhaps you even try to, you try to avoid looking further back, and there are skeletons of your past, there are baggage of things that come with you, and you know what you're like, so we are thankful for the words of Caiaphas. Because he was a man who said it would be good if one man died for the people. And Jesus did that for us. And so be assured that God loves us not because of anything we can bring along. Not because of how good we are. Not because of our ability to try and impress him or our record of good behavior or the boxes that we can tick or the doctrine that we know. The things we understand. But he loves us because of Jesus. Because Jesus drinks the cup instead of us. Actually, we're going to remember that in a bit because we'll be taking bread and wine together. And as we take a cup, so we remember that Jesus took the cup for us that we might have a cup of blessing rather than a cup of judgment. And so I hope you see something of what's going on in the garden. We see with John the reality of a mess. We see Peter with his sword and the ear of Malchus. We see Judas the betrayer. We see a messy garden encounter. We see betrayal and yet we see so much more than that. As it is, as it is for us in the midst of our busy, messy, dark lives at times. So often we only see it from ground level. We see Google Street Map. Rather than the big picture, the perspective from above, the divine perspective. That God is at work. He is faithful. He is. We can trust him. We can rely on him. Perhaps even in and through the most unlikely things. Perhaps even when it's really dark and messy. Perhaps that's when he's particularly at work. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your loving obedience. We are so thankful for your kindness in being prepared to take the cup for us. We are so thankful that Caiaphas was right. That it was indeed good for you to die instead of us. And we thank you for the way that we see, even in 
complicated, messy misunderstanding and betrayal, we see you at work bringing about your extraordinary plans and purposes. And so we pray that you would help us to trust you. Lord, you know our lives, you know the things keeping us awake at night, you know the, the reality of us as individuals, as a church. Help us to trust you and to keep trusting you, please. Help us to know your goodness and your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.